Hello, this is 1584, the podcast from Cambridge University Press. I'm Lewis Burchin, and today I'm talking to University Distinguished Professor William Schmidt from Michigan State University about his new book, Schooling Across the Globe. Professor Schmidt, using his background in statistics and educational policy, has a long and distinguished career working with international comparative surveys of education around the world. Having been part of the founding team for the third International Mathematics and Science Study, TIMS, and now also working with OECD on the Programme for International Student Assessment, PISA. Hello, Bill. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so I wanted to start off asking you um, a really basic question. So PISA and TIMS are the most well-known international comparative tests. Can you briefly explain the difference between them? Yes, uh, I think that's an important distinction because I think sometimes people uh, draw interpretations and conclusions from one study that are more relevant to another study. So I think it's it's very worthwhile to spend a moment talking about that. Uh, at the very least, or let me say the most important actually uh, distinction is that the uh, Tim study, the trends study, they focus on what happens in schools. It's really a school-based study looking at curriculum broadly defined across all the countries and want to know what students have learned with respect to that mathematics curriculum in fourth and in eighth grade. Uh, sometimes they include a high school, but that's not very commonly included. PISA, on the other hand, has as its focus the uh, development of literacy, mathematical literacy. So there in that PISA test, there's a greater focus on seeing if students can use the mathematics to solve real-world oriented problems. So they're confronted with things like how much wood do you need to build a fence uh, around a certain piece of property? And you need to use the quantitative information to come up with an answer of how much wood you would need to purchase. So it's very practically oriented, and it's pretty much in the use of the mathematics. As I said, Tim's, on the other hand, focuses more on the actual mathematics and the understanding of that mathematics. So that's one big difference. Um, I mentioned Tim's does fourth and eighth grade, sometimes 12th or the end of secondary. Uh, PISA, on the other hand, has only one data point, and that's 15-year-olds. Uh, this is done in, this is defined in terms of, of age and not grade level. So we know from the countries that participate, about two-thirds of the countries uh, have as the 15-year-old uh, population that's mostly in 10th grade. Uh, but there are countries with 15-year-olds predominantly in 9th grade, and some even with them focusing in 10th grade. So there is quite a variation in terms of the actual grade levels. And I think that's points in the direction of something very important to understand about the two dif the differences in the two studies. Um, what you think you get if you look at PISA when you're looking at it, if you're looking from a curriculum sort of or a school-based notion, what it is often not remembered is that even within a given country, the 15-year-olds could be in two or three different grade levels. And across countries, we see the same thing. So. If it's based in terms of what's happening in schools, you have different le different amounts for 15-year-olds across countries and within countries, which would confound somewhat 
the interpretation back to schools because they're in quite different grades. Whereas Tim's focus is on the grade level and therefore you have the comparable grade across all countries and therefore you can then actually understand the results, the performance in those terms with respect to actual grade levels. Great. So does Tim's then focus in on um, more of the local curriculum? So what's actually taught um, in the school up to that age, or is it also based on um, a kind of similar comparable level of mathematics skills? Well, that's a good question. Um, the way this is traditionally done is to look across the participating countries and find uh, that part which is fairly common across all of the countries. And then that defines the nature, the substance of the test. And so the test itself is a common test. But as you point out, uh, one of the issues is that the local schools, uh, country by country or the local within a country, they may have their own interpretation of the curriculum. And so one of the important things that Tim's collects is a lot of curriculum data in terms of understanding what kinds of opportunities to learn students have at the grades in question. And so there's that, that kind of focus. Now PISA, on the other hand, is looking at literacy, which isn't really taught in any particular grade. It's something that develops and evolves over the first X number of years of schooling, wherever 15-year-olds in that country uh, are defined as being primarily in that grade level. And so there the emphasis more on not what was given and studied in a particular grade, but cumulatively what has been studied over the school history of the student up to that point at which he or she is 15 years old. So again, there's a difference in how you think and how you interpret. Uh, in the Tim study, people like often to look at the relationship of what is taught in that grade level, like eighth grade, and then relate it to the eighth grade performance. There are problems with that, uh, that type of analysis, because there's no pretest. Uh, but that's the focus of the way in which that, those studies, the trend studies are defined. Sure. Okay. So um, can we talk a little bit about the kind of different variables that go into um, a cohort that sits one of the international comparative studies? So there are obviously a whole host of different variables that make up um, any one cohort of students. So different types of schools, class size, um, the experience and subject expertise of teachers, whether they're in a rural or urban setting, um, social class and economic background. Um, so what are the, the risks of seeing these studies as single ranking exercise for education systems? Well, I, I, that, that's a really excellent question. And, and I, I, let me answer that question, but there's something else I think that's important in this context. Um, I think that is one of the silliest ideas uh, to look at the rankings of the countries, given the different curricula of the different countries, different, the different structures of education, uh, given so many differences. My, my short version of this is after studying, being involved in these studies for many years is that, in fact, the only thing that seems to be in common in mathematics across all the countries is that there are students and that's about it. Because you find all kinds of different models 
of, of the, even the very individuals who are engaged. Usually there's a teacher and usually there's some kind of a book, but that's about it. But just from a comparative sense, it's really just the students that have this totally in common across these systems. So the very notion of looking at who's, who's first, and by the way, it's developed quite a cottage industry where, uh, at least here in the United States, people s suggest and gather groups, of course, paying money for a trip to the country that had the number one ranking with the search, I call it, the search for the Holy Grail. If only they go there and discover this, then their country will then too perform well. And it's appealing and people do it, but it's silly and it's ill-founded. And in the book that you referred to, we show how this goes up and down across countries, that there are very few countries that continuously sit in a, in a high level position. Interestingly enough, Japan is one. Japan tends to be in the top five, just about in every study they participated in. And they participated in most of the studies over this 60 year span of international assessments. But to pick the one that happens to score on the top in a given, um, a given uh, year of, ex of the testing uh, is just folly. Uh, I give an example, Finland achieved its rating as number one. But you look at the data further, you find out that that really should be saying number one among the OECD countries. They were not number one. In that year, Taiwan had the highest performance uh, score. So at, continuing with Finland, what we find is that Finland a couple of years later slides way down in the rankings. And they were at the higher end in PISA, but in TIMS, they were in the middle of the pack. So it has little meaning. It's a silly idea. And it's really a waste of time. <laughs> That's fairly unequivocal then. <laughs> um, yeah, not that, not that I have a strong opinion <laughs> or anything. So just to kind of pick up then on, so policy tourism we, we've concluded is bad. Um, you know, we see certainly in Europe as well, um, an awful lot of ministers around about the time of PISA results being announced, stepping onto planes to Finland um, and to Shanghai and so on. Um, so if we can't conclude that, you know, there are particular characteristics from one country that's at the top, that happens to be at the top um, in one year, how are we, what's, what's the most effective way for us to learn um, from these international comparative surveys? I think there are two ways to do that. Uh, one of them is look at the top, um, five, uh, top five countries. Some five is arbitrary. You can look at the data and there's usually a gap in performance at some point. And so we have done in the past is what we have done is to take uh, the top X number of countries and then look at the characteristics across those which are common and which then could be related to the performance on the test. In other words, you're by going and looking and abstracting across a set of countries, you are less tied to the idiosyncratics nature of each country and the idiosyncrasies that exist within that society. So 
That is what we've done in the past in the third international math and science study. We took the, and in fact, I think in that case, which is probably why I used the number five, there were five countries performing in the top. And we analyzed those countries from the point of view of their curriculum, the opportunities they gave to the students. And uh, what we found was a pattern. And if we took the criterion of two thirds or more of the countries, basically we ended up with a very nice pattern, which created and led to a set of policy recommendations that the best kind of curriculum for student performance is one that's coherent, focused, and demanding, rigorous. And that we got not from one country, but from an abstraction across a set of countries. That I think is reasonable because you're then not tied so much to the particular culture. You are doing something that cuts across countries. The other way is by doing statistical analysis. And again, to refer to the book, uh, there is a chapter there which shows a series of relational analyses where you simply do the analysis in each country using the exact same set of variables and you then postulate an hypothesis of relationships. You fit the statistical model and then you compare the estimates that you get for the various relationships. You, you look and compare those. In other words, it's like uh, a meta-analysis. That is, you analyze the relationships within each country and then you analyze what those relationships are and see if you can see certain patterns. For example, in PISA uh, 2012, which was focused on mathematics, we did that and we found that in every country, every all 62 of the countries, there was a statistically significant relationship between uh, opportunity, that is what the students studied uh, over their um, number of years up to the time they were 15 years old, and that we found that related to performance on the literacy test. And the nature of the, the, the size of the relationships varied, but they were present in every country. That then can lead you to the notion that there's pretty strong evidence that what students study, the nature of it, how much time they spend on it, the sequence in which they encounter the topics is related to student performance and learning. And so that's another way that's more statistically driven uh, and uh, is, again, looking across the countries and, the, and looking at that relationship that you're interested in in multiple contexts. And you gain greater strength the more countries in which you find this, the same relationship. And then, again, you also have variation in the uh, size of the relationship. And then looking at that, you might be able to gain some insight of why some countries get even more of an impact or more of an effect from uh, the curriculum. So I think those are the two ways that I think are pretty tried and true and have worked pretty well. Great. And you mentioned um, opportunity to learn. So can you just briefly kind of explain what, what opportunity to learn is? I would be glad to do that because I personally believe it is the, well, it's one of the two, or it may be the major factor. Uh, in your earlier question, you referred to the fact that these studies have many factors associated with them. And uh, one of the factors that's very common across all the years of the, of the IEA study, starting with the first international through the second, to the TIMS, the third one, to all the trends versions that have been around since then, there is a there is a collective 
homage to the founding fathers of all this. About 60 years ago, a set of faculty, primarily from the University of Chicago, uh, Sweden, and London, uh, got together and uh, decided that to do comparisons, one needed some kind of quantitative information, like performance. So they set out to do this, but immediately said they recognized, but in different countries, different curricula, they cover different mathematics. Uh, there's an image out in the world that mathematics is mathematics, and a math test is a math test, neither of which is true. Uh, the, the, if you look across countries, where certain topics are covered is different. The sequence in which they're covered can vary, and the very presence of a topic uh, can can differ. That is, in some countries it's there, in other countries it's not. And so all of that then they felt would be unfair in a way to compare countries, student performance, uh, because they're being exposed to different content. So that's where the idea and the concept of opportunity to learn came into play. Uh, a, a psychologist, John Carroll, uh, about that same time, wrote a paper about the a model for school learning. In that model, he talks about opportunity to learn as a variable that refers to whether, it was actually a time variable, how much time were students given to learn a certain topic. And he pushed, postulated a model in which that was a key element. Well, over time, opportunity to learn has three sort of instantiations. One is, did the topic get covered or not? how much time was allocated to the study of that topic and the sequence in which the topics are covered both within a grade level and across the grade levels. And so it's really a measure of curriculum. It tells uh, what kind of experiences in mathematics students have at the grade, in Tim's at the grade level in question. In PISA in 2012, for the first time, that type of opportunity measure was included and because of literacy being more cumulative, the opportunity to learn measure was more cumulative as well. It was not what did you study in math this particular year when you were 15 years old, but what have you studied in school basically since you entered school? And so it is such a fundamental variable. In your earlier question, you seem to be implying in some sense or asking, which of these is you know really important? Well, the opportunity variable is, I think, the most fundamental uh, factor to be accounted for. And I'll say that in two ways. First of all, it just makes logical sense because children tend to learn what they're taught in school. So the measure of that seems, as they said, the founding fathers, it makes it all more fair to do these comparisons. Um, and, and I think that that's really one aspect of it. But the second is, Let's say you want to study the relationship of uh, some policy you notice in a particular country. Um, let's say uh, some policy about teachers and their preparation. And you correlate that in some statistical sense to the outcome. The problem with that is if you do not include a measure of the opportunity and within that country across gray, across the schools and grades and across classrooms even within a school, all teachers are not teaching the same math, then the two become confounded, teachers and the curriculum. And what you interpret as a teacher effect may well be a teacher effect, yes, but also a curriculum effect. And if you confound those two, 
you can come up with bad policy. And I think that's what happens a lot in these international studies. Now, the trend studies, the TIM studies, if you will, have always included some measures of opportunity. Um, in 1995, the third study, this was done extensively. Uh, in subsequent studies, not as thoroughly. And in PISA, as I said, first introduced in 2012 around the mathematics. In 2021, coming up, uh, the next math study, focus study, uh, there will be opportunity to learn measures again. And so more and more now, these studies are including that as a key variable, not just for people who want to study the impact of curriculum, but as I said a moment ago, to have a variable that controls for the variation and covariation associated with the differences across schools and across classrooms and across countries in the nature of what's taught in what's called the math curriculum. Great. It's such a, a complex area. And I think actually going back to one of the words that you mentioned earlier, which is coherence, um, our colleagues at Cambridge Assessment talk a lot about coherence, the importance of coherence in affecting a, a, an effective curriculum reform. Um, I mean, when you're, when you're looking at the different factors um, that align in a curriculum reform. Um, are there any that you think, you know, aside obviously from the opportunity to learn, have a particular impact? And also how long does it take for um, an intervention to actually take effect? So can we, can we look, for example, at what um, a country is doing now and kind of look at the results that come out in the next PISA or TIMS test and say definitively, oh, well, that clearly had an effect. Well, the short answer to the way you phrased the question at the end is no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> the uh, other side of it is if I knew the answer to that, I could probably be in charge of the world's education systems. Uh, I don't think we know. I mean, it, it takes a while to work its way through because those kids are progressing across grades. So it depends on what the nature of the uh, thing is. If, if, you know, something you do in third grade could have an impact by the time they're in eighth grade. And so it really is, you know, probably 10 years or more before you can really study and understand uh, what curriculum reform might best work. But I think the one thing the third international study uh, did is that it actually studied the curriculum as if it were an output. And I would argue with anybody who wants to argue that in fact, it is an output of an educational system. It is the output that is more uh, uh, policy malleable. It is the thing that I know England is struggling with in the US only recently for the first time in its history came up with something that is like a national set of standards and, and to define the curriculum. So this, this notion of, of, of what goes in that curriculum and that is of real central importance to many countries because there's so much variability within those countries. Now, the word coherence uh, can have two kinds of meanings. One is that it that attaches to the, to the content itself. Mathematics is a very hierarchically structured, logically structured discipline. Uh, the progression through the topics of math uh, reflect the structure. If that's done in the school, then you have a coherence that students 
and teachers can observe and see how these aren't isolated topics in math. They connect. There's a structure that connects these ideas. And so as you progress through and you move from, you know, something like whole numbers, well, from counting numbers to whole numbers, uh, then you go into the fractions and then you go into the negative. There's a logic to all of that and it's all connected. And the basic theorems uh, that sit behind us and the axioms basically are there. And so that, what we argue when we use the word coherence, means that the, that the progression and how the mathematics is put into the school system should reflect that logical structure. If it does not, you are asking kids to do something that's, that's like, well, you can't even say this anymore, but I'll say it anyway because I don't have a good alternative. It's like memorizing the proverbial phone book. Um, it's just isolated things you're trying to memorize because you don't see any connection. And that coherence is a very key feature to successful math curriculum. So my point is, if you study the curriculum as was done in that Tim study, you can actually learn a set of characteristics without waiting for performance. In other words, it's better, it's information which should allow you to design a curriculum reform. And yes, you have to wait a long time to get some outcome in terms of performance. But if you do it in thoughtful ways of studying like they did in that study, the actual nature of the curriculum and how different countries expressed it, you can actually learn something there in and of it by itself. In other words, Tim's actually had a curriculum study in which the 40 countries provided extensive data on their curriculum, and that was analyzed in the same way, uh, well, I mean, in a parallel way to the way you analyze the performance data. And so that's what taught us those principles like coherence. But also quickly, coherence also reflects that in an educational system, um, you have standards, typically, most countries, you have textbooks, you have teachers in a classroom. And the question is, how do those things fit together? And there is, again, a coherence there, which would have these varying uh, aspects of curriculum, uh, instantiations of curriculum, actually work together. And we found in the, again, back in the third study, that Japan was one of those countries in which everything fit together the way you would expect. The standards influence the textbooks, the standards and the textbooks influence the teacher, and the teacher taught and the kids learned from that system. But in other countries like the US, you find goofy relationships, which the textbook was essentially driving performance, it wasn't related to the teacher or the standards. Of course, at that time, we really didn't have anything approaching a national standard. So my point is you can study curriculum in and of itself, and you can learn ways to move and progress in reforming the curriculum without necessarily immediately connecting it to performance. Although in the long run, you obviously want to see if that has improved student learning. Sure, absolutely. So, um, well, moving on to kind of looking at the future, we've, this is a, a PISA year. Um, we're PISA at 2018 due to report in December 2019. And Tim's 2019 about to begin testing. We're never far away from those newspaper headlines about the best schools in the world. Um, and unfortunately, performance slumps usually as well. Um, how should we be looking at the studies um, when they report uh, this time round? Well, that, that's really a good question. And I, I totally strongly believe in these international studies. And I believe that both TIMS and PISA 
are very professionally run and done studies, and they have a value. Uh, but the value is not in the horse race. Uh, I understand the politics of it. I understand ministers actually in previous studies, some lost their jobs when the results came out after one of the one of the trend studies. Um, so there is a there is a political consequence. But I think that's those political and sort of um, uh, public interest sort of uses of it are really really not the important aspect of these studies. So the reports that come out initially and what press picks up is who's number one and, and usually some comments in the, the country-specific papers about why they didn't do as well as they did or bragging about how wonderfully they did do. The real, the real value is, comes in the analyses we've just been talking about, like looking at curriculum, looking at opportunity to learn. How does that vary across the countries? looking at the relationship of those kinds of variables to, uh, to performance. Uh, again, referring back to the book, there's a chapter there that gives 10 things we've learned consistently through 60 years and what we have learned in that respect. Uh, and those are the kinds of things I think that give that have policy implications and provide fodder for uh, governments and their policy wonks to actually think through and uh, plan what might be more intelligently a way to reform or change the school system than simply doing it, doing it on the basis of ideology. You know, it's not perfect. Causal inferences are very difficult to make in, in this kind of a, uh, these kinds of data sets. Um, so, you know, there is that limitation, but there surely are lots of people out there who have opinions about how schools should be organized, what should be done, what should be taught. This certainly is a way to gain much more reliable, much more uh, valid information about what changes might be worth thinking about rather than just going by the whim of different people's opinions. So in that sense, that's where I think the value comes. But you also have to be careful because there are some individuals who, who um, talk about it as if it's a causal inference and say this countries ought to do X and it will improve performance. Well, I would simply suggest to all listeners uh, that you carefully listen and actually think through whether such an inference is, is drawable from this, these kinds of data. And typically causal inferences are not going to be well supported because these studies do not have any kind of a pre-measure so like in the trend studies, you want to know something about eighth grade instruction and how it impacts eighth grade performance. You don't have a measure at the beginning of eighth grade that tells you then that you can control for, that tells you then what kind of learning took place. All you get with the test is status. Where's the, where, where the, where certain classrooms, where certain students sit within the distribution of performance. So it's, they're valuable, but they have to be thought about very carefully and used um, very carefully. But the one thing that I'm particularly pleased about and proud of is in that book, that chapter that has those 10 things, um, those are really, I think, fundamental findings because they keep occurring. And one of them, or several of them, have to do with the opportunity to learn. And... Uh, and also other aspects of these studies like social class and what it means.
what are some of the interpretations of that relationship? Uh, those are the kind of things I think that greatly enhance um, uh, policymakers' understandings of what levers are best to work with in terms of improving student performance. Yeah, it's an incredibly complex area, I think, in order to try to define kind of decisions. Um, and it, it is interesting how these um, comparative tests kind of affect um, policy, in fact. So um, I want to just kind of end this in the same way that you um, end schooling across the globe, um, which is looking at the future and what does that, what does that hold and what could that hold um, for international comparative tests? Well, as I said somewhere at the beginning of this, I, I wholeheartedly uh, believe in and endorse and support uh, both the TIMS and the PISA studies. I've had the unique uh, experience, I think relatively unique, of working with integrally, intimately with both types of studies, both PISA and TRENDS or TIMS. And um, so I come to that question with the, with the hope that there might be some ways to better coordinate the two studies in timing and in other ways uh, that would allow us to gain even greater information. I mean, if you think about it, the TIM studies go at fourth and eighth grade typically. And as I said um, a while ago, uh, for most countries, it's 10th grade uh, for the 15 year olds. So if you think about four, eight and 10th, those are nice grades, a, a primary, elementary, uh, a middle school as we call it in the US or lower secondary and secondary. Uh, and so that gives you a picture of all three. And if you think about the development of literacy, it's something that's more cumulative, as I said, and therefore it would come in the, in the secondary, uh, would be best measured in the secondary school, at the secondary school level. The other two would be better, I think, my personal opinion, tied to the curriculum as they are, because that shows the background they're getting and what kinds of math. And then along comes the, the, uh, the cumulative measure of literacy. So I think, you know, coordination would give us greater things. Like, for example, in the current cycles, um, PISA goes every three years, although it's every nine years focusing on something like math and nine years for every time it's for the main focus being on science or each one gets about nine years apart. So um, if, if PISA's on three-year cycle, Tim's is on four, well, you can see that's not going to work out in terms of coordination. And so um, what sometimes by chance happens, uh, it was several years ago, uh, Tim's was at eighth grade. And, and uh, for this country, Russia, uh, PISA came a year later, which was for their country, most 15-year-olds are in ninth grade. So there they had the opportunity of actually a longitudinal at least from a cohort point of view. They have the eighth graders, and then the next year after, they have the ninth graders. That's a very powerful thing for a system to see and be able to actually connect those. And in fact, Russia took the advantage very cleverly and followed up their eighth graders as ninth graders as a special study. And so what I'm talking about is that kind of coordination so that you might take advantage where, for most countries, if you gave TIMS two years before PISA, you'd have that eighth to 10th grade thing, not for all the countries, but at least for, for the two thirds as 
I think roughly about how many have it that their focus of 15 year olds is that 10th grade. So that's what that's what I, I'm talking about. The other thing is, uh, this may be a bit technical, but I just decided one of the other differences between PISA and TIMS is that PISA samples um, the school and then samples kids within the school, no matter what classroom they're in. TIMS samples schools, but then samples classrooms within the schools. All of that leads to certain kinds of of um, what we call in statistics confounding, so that there you can't disentangle certain things. Like in the uh, PISA study, you cannot know your measure of within school variation, which people are interested in, reflects not only kids, it reflects classrooms, it reflects teachers. That's not the case in, in Tim. So there are those kinds of problems which uh, it would be better if someone thought through some ways to better do the sampling uh, to accommodate those kinds of issues. Um, and finally, I would say, I think the future needs to always have uh, opportunity to learn measures. That's a strong bias of mine, but the data support the bias. And in the book, you'll find that this is something that continually has shown up. It's just how strong a relationship uh, what students cover in school, the time spent on it, and the sequence in which they experience it does make a difference to student learning and student performance at the given point. So I would just encourage that the studies continue to find better, better ways to measure this thing called opportunity to learn. And that would pay due respect to the founding fathers from 60 years ago who recognized that that was what was needed. And in fact, the interesting thing, you might find this really interesting, those 60, that 60 years ago, those faculty, they were university faculty, they actually anticipated all of the major problems of these studies, the major qualifications that would be necessary, the things that uh, can be done, the things that are not done well, they cautioned about causality. They recognized all of those limitations. 60 years ago. So what's happened since then? We've, we've it developed because of parallel fields like in computing and in statistics, we've developed better methodologies, better tools by which to do what they knew they should do, but didn't have the, the tools to do. So it's not like all this stuff is that new in one sense. It all was thought through about 60 years ago. And that's mighty strong kudos to those faculty members who actually laid this out and started this whole line of inquiry. That's quite extraordinary because you do tend to think of international comparative surveys, you know, of the, the type we're familiar with now as being a much more recent uh, intervention. So yeah, great to know that really people- Really <laughs> Yeah, really, really the, uh, well, it was like uh, Torsten Hussein from Sweden and, uh, and Benjamin Bloom from the University of Chicago. Uh, Coleman, the sociologist, was involved in certain stages. Uh, Thorndike from uh, Columbia. So you, some of the big names within this field. And I'm sorry, especially since I'm talking to the English audience, there was a, there was a gentleman who did a, a Coleman-like study in London, and his name just escapes me at the moment, but he too was also a key part of this original effort. Um, and I think 
that's 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 just interest. The history, I think, is interesting because their goal, again, at the very outset, was to study education across the world, treating the world as a laboratory where different countries do education in different ways. And their notion, and this I think was Torsten Hussein's words, treat it as a laboratory, and then we can learn from that certain things that countries may choose to uh, use in the uh, development of their own or reform of their own educational system. And it's come to come so, so influential. Um, but thank you very much for your time today, Bill. Um, Schooling Across the Globe is available now from Cambridge University Press.